Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161-33, The Oil Situation, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 122, and this is April the 12th, 1986. This evening, I have Otto Scott with me of our Calcedon staff. I think some of you know that uh, in Otto's background is some years of experience with the oil industry as editor of the oil world, and also as one of the top executives of an oil company. We have today a very interesting situation in the world of oil in that whereas less than 10 years ago we had an ostensible shortage of oil, lines at the gas stations, a rising price for gasoline. Now we have a declining price. We have an oil glut the world over, and yet we have uh, oil companies, for example, paying more and better dividends than IBM, for example, and also the oil shares, although depressed, being regarded by some as uh, particularly choice items. Otto, what is your general outlook on the world of oil? And then we'll get into specifics. Well, the, we have to go back a way. The United States, of course, dominated the international petroleum industry for quite a while. We lost that dominant position when in the early 70s when OPEC got together and created its cartel. Shortly after that, the majors realized that they had lost the control of the crude oil market. So they made a deal with the Arab crude oil producers to go in as partners on oil refining to produce gasoline and all the other products from crude oil. Some of these partnerships were open and some were silent. Some of the large refineries that have been created have been created in the Middle East, in the Arab countries, some in Europe. So that the whole situation shifted from emphasis on crude oil to emphasis on product. And that's only one of the shifts that's taken place. Uh, the other shift that took place, of course, was the discovery of new crude oil reserves in other parts of the world other than Saudi Arabia and uh, Arabia itself. The North Sea oil discoveries, for instance, discovery of oak immense amounts of crude oil in the north slope of Alaska. The rediscovery, you might say, or the, or the recollection of the large crude oil reserves of Mexico, which had never been properly tapped. And overall, the whole question of crude oil is that if every continent were explored as diligently as the North American continent, for instance, there's no doubt, or very little doubt, that we could be swimming in crude oil. So it's really a marketing situation. And what's happening to the, to the product market is that an increasing amount of product is being shipped into the United States from overseas gasoline, diesel fuel, jet fuel, all the many, many uh, other products possible. And this has gradually put the small companies, the independent companies in the petroleum industry in the United States up against the wall. In fact, 
for the last year, year and a half, they've been closing down at the rate of one every three weeks. Now, these small refineries, uh, of course, don't produce as efficiently as a very large modern refinery, but each one served a, an area. It served a small market area around its own distribution pattern. And for a long time, the oil industry or the petroleum industry operated a system where if you made a sale in somebody else's territory, they would deliver it for you. And if they made a sale in yours, you would deliver it for them because that would keep the price down and you wouldn't have to charge the consumer for transportation. Because, believe it or not, the oil industry has treated the American people very well. Our great industrial productivity really has its origin and was maintained and grew and developed because of cheap fuel, because it was provided with oil and oil products cheaper here in this country than anywhere else in the world, in the developed world, much cheaper than Europe, much cheaper than any other area. The American public has never realized what it owes the American petroleum industry. But to go back to the, to the effect of the importation of petroleum product on the smaller independents, to close them down means that in any future period, the cost of these products has got to increase because the transportation costs will be increased because you'll have to go over larger territories. Now, the independents, of course, protested against this trend, and the majors went to Washington and spread out the map of the country and said, look at all the refining capacity we have in our great big refineries here. The independents are crying wolf. There's nothing to worry about. At the same time, a, a concurrent development, of course, has been the inability of OPEC, which fundamentally means Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, to keep the other oil producers in line, uh, especially Nigeria, which needs money very badly, and other areas like Mexico. Mexico uh, refuses to keep any sort of an agreement with anybody. It's against the Mexican psyche to keep an agreement. Nobody knows why. So OPEC began to fall apart in terms of the crude oil price. And one of the reasons was also that the Arab producing nations no longer care about the crude oil price because they're moving into the refining and marketing end of the business. So there are two things underway. One is a decline in the price of crude oil, so that imported crude oil is moving into the country in enormous quantities at very low prices. The prices are lower than any domestic producer can match. He can't pay uh, an American wage and meet the price level of Saudi Arabian wells where the cost of a barrel of oil is about 10 cents. So they're, at this point, practically speaking, putting the American native producers of oil, the drillers and so forth, out of business, the same as they're putting the refiners out of business because I've just recently went through parts of uh, Colorado, northern Colorado, and Utah. Uh, the Colorado area, there's several big fields, and I noticed almost all the wells were capped. It's no longer worthwhile to try to bring them to market at the uh, present prices, because at $15 a barrel, for instance, oil is actually cheaper now than it was before OPEC began to quadruple the price in 1972 and three because of the inflationary factor. Now, to put the oil producers out of business and the oil refiners out of business is, of course, to reduce the giant petroleum industry. The largest industry in the United States is to put it in a very perilous position. The majors are doing very well. They like it. They think it's just great. 
the majors and their Arab partners are uh, uh, seeing some of their independent competitors being uh, wiped out. But the long, the overall trend outside of the enormous numbers of people that are losing their jobs and their business and their dividends and so forth, the overall trend is very ominous for us. We've seen uh, for two reasons, and correct me if I'm wrong, a decline in refineries in this country. One, the environmentalists, and two, the foreign competition. Uh, doesn't that pose a threat for us in the military uh, sense? Well, it does. Our reserves are probably at the lowest point they've ever been as a nation because under the, uh, under the competitive pressures of imported petroleum product and imported crude, most of the oil companies are drawing upon their inventories and selling their inventories out because they, they fill their inventories up when the price of oil was higher. And uh, as the price of oil drops, they want to get rid of those inventories and get hold of some oil that doesn't cost as much. In the meantime, however, the inventories were collateral for loans. Their oil reserves are collateral for large loans that the banks have given them. As the value of the collateral diminishes, the chances of those loans being called increases. So we have an internal financial economic problem confronting the industry of great proportions. Overall, of course, we are facing a serious security problem, problem which I think is what you had in mind, problem of national security because oil is what, of course, the most essential of all modern commodities. Now, Assuming we have a crisis next year, an international military crisis, and we suddenly find ourselves desperately in need of much more gasoline, how quickly can we reactivate the closed refineries when we're no longer able to get it from abroad? No way, because a refinery once closed down turns into a massive rust. They cannot be reactivated. And that means that a large number of American refineries are now finished. That's right. Absolutely finished. Many representations have been made to Washington uh, without avail. Washington is hung up. Uh, it's hoisted on its own semantic petard in a way. Uh, as you know, the American Academy and the majority of American economists and the majority of educated Americans and uh, the majority of our governing class and our group in Washington believe in free trade. They don't believe in very many things, but apparently they have a really religious belief in free trade. But free trade is like unilateral disarmament. It's wonderful in a world where no one else has any guns. But free trade in a world where everyone else practices mercantilism is suicidal. Well, in the past, when we've advocated free trade, we've said all the same. For reasons of military security, certain things are exempt from these provisions. Why have we suddenly abandoned uh, this with respect to things that are so vital to national security? That's a terribly good question, and I addressed it at the CMRE meeting in the Arden House a couple of months ago to one of the men on one of the boards of the, the commission that keeps track of our international trade, and he couldn't answer the question. Now... We had the same sort of a confrontation regarding oil and cheap oil before OPEC came together, before OPEC became effective in the 50s. And at that time, the national security argument prevailed. So a quota was established where only a certain percentage of foreign oil could come into the United States. And that, of course, meant that... Uh, 
the price of crude oil in the United States was artificially lifted. There were all kinds of bellows of complaint from Jack Anderson, the great industrialist, you know, the columnist was an expert on all things, <laughs> uh, and various and sundry others who said that this program was at the expense of the American consumer. And to that extent, uh, to the extent that the consumer had to pay more for gasoline and oil, uh, it was true. But don't forget that before OPEC, the oil only cost us about $3 and $4 a barrel. Mm -hmm. And gasoline and petroleum products were correspondingly low. So they were hollering about products that were really quite cheap. But it did save the domestic industry. It did save the domestic refining industry and the, and the independent producers. Now, the majors couldn't have cared less. The majors didn't like the program because the majors had their tie-in with the Arab countries and were getting all the oil they wanted. So, of course, it was oil that the majors were shipping in that was put under a quota. And they spent a great deal of money uh, trying to destroy that program, which was identified as a pork barrel or an oil barrel or whatever you want to call it. And at the same time that they were complaining about this, if you recall, Rush, the gasoline companies uh, or the oil companies that were producing branded gasoline in their own names were having price wars all over the country. And they were putting out free dishes Mm -hmm. and, and all kinds of premiums, and at the same time that they were being accused of being monopolists robbing the, the, the consumer. Yes. We haven't finished uh, using, that is, breaking all the glasses we acquired during the uh, giveaway program. Uh, in the last two, three days, and I won't ask you to talk about matters that were confidential, you were called in by a major oil company to consult with them. Uh, just a general question. Do you feel these oil companies are aware of the implications of what's happening? It's threat to the future of this country, or are they thinking simply in terms of uh, the annual report? Well, the independents are very much aware of the threat. And so, for instance, are the Israelis. Mm. Uh, Israel has been watching this with considerable disquietude, and uh, there, have been a, there was even a, a, an American Jewish group formed to do something about the situation. So both the American Jewish com uh, community and the Israeli community is very much aware of the fact that what's going on is not very good. It will put the whole world virtually at the mercy of the Arabs in one or two other countries. Well, yes, and of course we always have a hanging over the situation, the temporary nature of the regimes in the Middle East. Yes. The, uh, the, the Soviets are in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is next to Pakistan. It's very close. It, it, uh, it's contiguous with Iran. The vetting is that when Khomeini dies, the Iranian situation will more or less fall apart. The mad mullahs will not be able to continue for any long period of time because they're operating in a, an empirical fashion. They have no pattern. They don't fit uh, the common accepted idea of a governmental apparatus. The Soviets can move in there at almost any time. They have North Yemen. They have Ethiopia. Uh, they have Libya, which has the largest air base in the Middle East, which we constructed and turned over to Gaddafi. And that brings up the whole Gaddafi thing in a way, if you don't mind. Yes. I, I, I was with Ashton when we had a, a, Ashton had a concession in Libya in the late 60s. And in the fall of 69, autumn of 69, King Idris, a strong ally of the United States, uh, a spiritual as well as uh, the king of Libya, spiritual leader, 
had to go to Italy for some medical treatment. Gaddafi and some other officers uh, launched a coup d'etat and took the radio station and the palace and a few other unprotected places. We recognized him within a week. We abandoned our ally, Idris, in a week. And in the second week, Gaddafi demanded that the United States pull its forces out of Libya, and we did, and turned over the wheelless air base to him without a word of protest. So this all strikes me as the, the fulminations now from the State Department and the White House about Gaddafi strike me as being somewhat ironic. He's a, he's a man we made. We created him. Yes, and the State Department hasn't learned anything from its previous errors because it's repeating them all over the world currently. Well, if we look down the line at the Philippines situation where Madame Aquino strikes me as being a wonderfully tender morsel for the communists, a tender matron, they'll <laughs> take her like an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, and if the Philippines fall under the control of the Kremlin or its puppets, Japan will be cut off from its oil. Japan would cease to exist as an industrial power. We don't have, uh, we don't have very large forces in Japan. We have forces there. We are responsible for her defense, but I don't know that we're in a military position to transport much to Japan, especially not past the Philippines. So you can see when you look at the Pacific situation and the Middle Eastern situation, the outlines of a noose because the Middle East is most important to Europe. Europe has about 90 days supply of oil of, and petroleum products. We have a bit more. We could run maybe 100 days. <laughs> but when we set up the oil reserves, there was a great many protests about that. That was considered redundant and unnecessary and so forth. And the idea was for the American government to put reserves of oil into caverns. They put them into caverns, and it was many months uh, while they were still pumping oil in there that they realized that they had no means of extracting the oil from the caverns. <laughs> that sounds like a federal project. Well, one of the reasons for these sort of things is that they will not take people from the industry now and give them governmental jobs overlooking the industry because they claim that that would be a conflict of interest. That means, then, that the government has created its own experts from outside the relative industries. And when men from the industry go to Washington to talk to the agencies uh, about these matters, they are regarded as special pleaders. Now, if a man doesn't have any interest in the cause that he's representing, you would wonder why he would represent the cause. But in Washington, the reverse is held to be true, and that is that if you're involved in that particular industry, what you say cannot be trusted. You know, that goes back some years, Otto, that attitude, because I remember when I was in the Indian Reservation during the war, a rancher was denied the right to sell all his steers, which were ready for the market, on the grounds that he should keep some for breeding purposes. <laughs> well, uh, in case our, any of our listeners are city people and don't know what a steer I is. can't top that. <laughs> a steer is an emasculated bull and is worthless for breeding purposes. But that is your bureaucracy. They have no knowledge of what they're dealing with, but they have all the power. Well, they have the power, and so far they've decided not to do anything about the oil situation. In fact, they're jubilant because they think that the drop in crude oil prices is a drop in inflation, which, of course, is a contradiction in terms. Uh, inflation is, quite simply, the degradation of a currency. Yes. 
and the drop in crude oil prices does not make our currency any better than it was before. So this is another, another non-sequitur. Yes, that's a very interesting point, Otto, and perhaps a little more should be said on that, because people could keep uh, looking, or the federal bureaus keep telling us that they've got inflation licked because prices are not going up or at least that's what they say. And they do not tell us that the money supply has been increasing. At the rate of 12% a year. Yes. Now, they estimate that it takes about 18 months for this to uh, boomerang on the market. Uh, But Mr. Reagan was inaugurated the first time in 1980, and prices have gone up about 35 to 40% since mm-hmm. 1980. You can't buy a car uh, for the price you could buy it in 1980. You can't buy a suit or a necktie or anything else. So who licked what inflation were? Yes. It's an amazing uh, bit of propaganda that people are ready to swallow. Well, let's look at this. I picked this up from Business Week, not my favorite magazine, but... They were talking about the impact of this, uh, of these drops in prices. They're really not even uh, smart enough to talk about the import problem, but they're talking about the effect on the prices. What it has meant to the, to the uh, independent oil companies, Phillips Petroleum, for instance, Tenneco and others, is that they're slashing their payrolls by 15 to 20 percent. They're knocking out tens of thousands of jobs. They've cut their company budgets, their uh, expenditures down by 30 percent, 26 percent, 35 percent, and so forth. They have stopped sending out teams to produce. Uh, Data Resources figures that 48,000 oil wells will be completed this year. That's down 40% from last year. And last year, by the way, was down from the year before and and also from the year before that. Now, when uh, when you start tracing the impact economically into, first of all, the oil companies' loss in the financial markets. You mentioned that they pay better dividends than IBM. They do. They paid um, probably overly high dividends, uh, although you must recall that it's a governmental policy that you should pay dividends if you possibly can because the government doesn't like to see you put cash reserves to one side. Mm. It, It wants you to spend or pay taxes. So you either have to pay dividends or pay taxes. And the dividend checks will uh, undoubtedly be cut in the, in the near future because if the banks call upon these men and they, you know, the banks don't call you officially, they call you unofficially first. Uh, they, they, suddenly they invite you to lunch or they, <laughs> they want you to come in and see them and they give you a nice lunch in their boardroom and then they put the screws to you very nicely. They're very polite about it in the beginning and they get worse as time goes by. So dividends will be cut before the bankers will relent. Mm-hmm. And then as these wells are capped, the owners of the properties upon which the well are drilling will stop getting their their monthly checks, and that's an awful lot of widows and orphans involved there, because believe it or not, most of the oil industry is owned by small people. And when we talk about stocks and dividends and so forth, we're talking about tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of small people. Then we're talking about jobs, and we're talking about equipment, which is not used. We're talking about plants that are closed down. We're talking about capital budgets that are cut back in the biggest industry we have, next to Detroit. You know, it's a, Detroit looks bigger, but oil is bigger. And the biggest industry. So 
you put together the a crunch in energy and uh, you've really got a, a massive, massive problem. If we were to put up an import wall against the importation of foreign crude and foreign product, then the oil industries would be back where they were when OPEC uh, got tough. The, the OPEC embargo was a good thing for the oil industry. The average man was right on that because it forced us to drill, it forced them to expand the refineries, it forced a lot of things. Well, there's so much here to cover, Otto, but to uh, start off, looking at oil shares, two things, contradictory perhaps, pop into my mind. First, while the prices are depressed, they are not the best investment given this future you talked about. And second, uh, the disposal value of most of these oil companies now is sometimes uh, far greater than the total value of the shares. Well, that's due to inflation. For the last... Uh, 15 years, almost every major company has been worth more dead than alive because you cannot replace the physical equipment of these firms uh, at, for any price. Inflation makes replacement so expensive that you can buy what they've got in terms of physical assets and uh, do better. You could sell, you could break them up and just sell, for instance, uh, Ashland's oils, Ashland's uh, trucks, its barges, its ships, its planes, its refineries, uh, and so forth, amount to more in terms of market value than the value of the paper, uh, uh, paper company's paper. And that's true of every company. This is one of the reasons why the takeovers, because to take over a company is to get something cheaper than you can build, and certainly quicker. And the whole takeover uh, phenomenon is doesn't add a single job to the American economy. In fact, it reduces jobs, because most of the takeover people if they do succeed, will then take a big axe and go through the company chopping off heads, getting rid of everybody, and looting the cash reserves of the firm. So this is a, uh, it's almost like uh, seeing a whole industrial sector being burned up by the pawnbrokers. Isn't this going to do a lot of damage to the banks, too, that are involved? Oh, indeed. The banks have uh, overextended. They wouldn't have overextended if the government hadn't uh, guaranteed their overseas loans. But uh, you remember that interview that I had some time ago with Hamilton Fish? Mm -hmm. Marvelous old man. And his question about how come he said there is no congressional investigation of these massive loans from our private banks to foreign governments. He said, you know, somebody usually gets a commission on these things. Don't you think the banker's nephew's got a commission when hundreds of millions of dollars are being handed around? And it's a very good question. I said, maybe it was a congressman's nephews. Maybe that's, <laughs> that's the reason that there was no inquiry. Well... With regard to these uh, oil companies, it appears that they are facing the same problem the American farmer has been facing. Mm -hmm. All industry is facing. Mm -hmm. It's not just the farmers, not just the agricultural belt, not just the oil. It's not just automo automobiles. Our whole industrial sector is melting before our eyes. I'm told by... Uh, one of our supporters, Dan Maxwell, in fact, that uh, 
Mines are being shut down in this country because they cannot compete with foreign companies which are getting the contracts. And the equipment, sometimes virtually new, is being pulled out and sold for 10 cents on the dollar by order of the banks. Uh, this is creating a crisis for us with regard to our mineral resources. So, as you say, this is uh, something that extends to more than the agricultural and the oil communities. What do you foresee in the near future uh, with regard to the oil scene and what the oil companies are trying to do about it? Well, the majors are going to survive uh, uh, under the present circumstances, but theirs is a survival based on the assumption that the world is going to be at peace forever, mm. that there's not going to be a major confrontation between the United States and the USSR. Now, I don't happen to believe in the possibility of nuclear war. I don't think that there's ever going to be one. I don't think there ever was going to be one uh, after we lost the monopoly. I do think, though, that the Soviet Union may very well conquer us by the ancient Chinese method of war, in which they have us in, by gradual stages, put us into an untenable situation. If we lose access to the trace minerals of South Africa, for instance, we will no longer be able to operate high technology. Now, I, re I just read... Uh, in Fortune magazine, a long article, Is It Time to Get Out of South Africa? And which the editors had a box. And in the box they said, don't worry about the minerals. Because they said in this box, we can find substitutes and we can live without the minerals of Southern Africa. Now, this is a direct contradiction to the Office of Strategic Resources, which tells us just the opposite. So who do we believe? Do we believe the television? Do we believe Fortune magazine? Do we believe editors? Or do we, do we believe industrial experts? Uh, I, I would say that we are going to have a financial crisis of great proportions, much worse than the 30s, because in the 30s we were law-abiding, docile, there were outbreaks of violence. I recall, and I'm sure you do too, where the farmers dumped milk on the highway and where they hanged a couple of sheriffs, and that, that stopped foreclosures for quite a while in, in a few counties. And uh, generally, they, they, uh, but generally, and there was a bonus march, if you recall that, and they didn't threaten anybody. Now we have large groups of people who feel that they are entitled to be taken care of and that if there is any reduction in their rations, they will threaten violence. So if we have a, a continuing unemployment problem, which we have now, and a continuing closure of plants and factories and the decline in production. I was in Utah and Colorado, as I said. Both these areas have blue-collar depressions right now. We know that the, uh, the Sun Belt is suffering. All the oil states are suffering, Louisiana, Texas, uh, Oklahoma. All the banks in those areas are suffering. Uh, everyone, of course, isn't suffering because everyone doesn't always. No, uh, no time is it universal. At all, at all times, there are people who seem to make money no matter how things are going. But unless the government stops, unless the government, our government, acknowledges these declines and these problems, there is no way that we can get out of them. Uh, we will have to say we have been misled and we've misread history. For instance, on the free trade argument, England was the country that introduced free trade after 200 years of conquest. For 200 years they invaded and they occupied and they shot people in order to get markets for their goods. 
And after they had all the markets, they declared free trade in the places they didn't control. But they always had an empire preference in their colonies. At any rate, they, they lowered the corn laws, as we're always told in school, and cheap American wheat and cheap Argentine beef began to pour into England, and by 1890, they could no longer feed themselves for the first time in the history of their nation. That's what made them vulnerable in World War One and Two. And the decline of their agriculture was paralleled by the decline in their heavy industry and the decline in their overseas trade. While the Germans put up a tariff, the Americans put up a tariff, both of them stole their technology from Britain and innovated their own and invaded the world international market. Now, we're doing what England did in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. We are going downhill. We still live like rich people. We still look great. But practically everything that I wear now comes from Korea or Taiwan or some other place. And I had a manufacturer recently that I talked to who said, how can I compete with a Chinese factory that pays 15 cents an hour wages? So you get into this question that Disraeli brought up. He said free trade is a very nice principle, but it's not a religion. Uh, if we want to feed the world, we can only manage to do it for a while. After we run out of that capacity, we will simply fall to an incredibly low standard of living. Right now, England's standard of living is below Italy's. This is the decline of a great power in our own lifetime. You spoke of certain sections of our country being very depressed now. Before that was in the papers, we felt it here in Calcedon because we'd get letters from people in certain sections saying, this is the last check I can send for a while because I'm out of work. I had a call from one pastor in an oil state saying that the uh, Christian school of 650 that they had at the church was going to shut down. No one had money for tuitions. They had no money for salaries. It was a one-industry area, oil, and oil-related. And a large congregation now had whether they were on the working level or executive level, no income. And so the pastor was $30,000 in arrears because he had no pay. Now, that's the kind of thing that's happening. And uh, we don't read very much about it, only get little hints here and there as we see uh, bank failures increase in a particular area. Well, I got a call from a retired investment banker in San Diego about two weeks ago who said that they have changed the rules uh, for the bank examiners. The bank examiners no longer have to close the bank down when they find it's in a perilous situation hmm. because so many are in a perilous situation that they don't want to start any stampede. Mm. Now, it may all be very nice, you know, to, to get cheap shirts from Taiwan, uh, but there's a German economist uh, talked about that named List. He said, what use is it to give me a cheaper shirt if I have to lose an arm? What we're seeing is somewhat different from anything the world has experienced before, at least on this scale. We have inflation, as you pointed out earlier, and I am inclined to believe we'll have it much more dramatically by the end of next year. But at the same time, we have a very depressed economy. So it's uh, you might say inflation with a depression. Well, it's an inflation with it's it's a depression with money. 
It's, it's wild, uh, but there are a lot of parallels with the late 20s. We have a credit expansion. Mm-hmm. And most of the credit cards, all the credit cards that I have, come to think of it, were sent in to me without my asking for them. And uh, it's hard to turn them down because that's credit is credit. A lot of people uh, use them and use them all and get into trouble. But we have here a great inflation of credit all the way across the board. Mm -hmm. The stock exchange, despite the fact that the figures are actually higher than they've ever been, uh, is actually lower when you discount the inflation factor. Uh, Our productivity is going down. Our unemployment is going up. The banks are reaching the limit of credit. The credit reporting agencies have got almost everybody below the high levels that they used to have them. Now, what's going to happen with all this? The chances are that it's a race. I think it's a race between an international crisis and a domestic crisis. And and the rules are different now than they were, let us say, in the late 30s. We don't have England. We don't have France. We don't have the great, rich, powerful allies of the Western Atlantic nations that used to exist. We've pushed those people back off the world stage. In our haste to make a wonderful world, we got rid of the colonial power and the colonial system, And now Britain, France, Holland, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, whatnot, are in the situation that they were in in the early 17th century. It can be objected that they are still rich and they still have trade, what they had trade then uh, all over the world. We're practically speaking alone, and we're confronting uh, the most implacable, the best educated, the most serious international power in our history. It's patient, it's deadly, it's at war, and we're asleep. Economic war has been waged against us, and we have failed to represent it. Just this last week I read where the Soviet Union has floated a new loan from Western banks. The banks of the West are falling all over themselves to lend money to the Soviet. The Soviet is pouring all kinds of oil onto the market. Say, well, the official excuse, of course, is that they need hard money. But why now? Why now when our oil industry is already staggering? Well, of course, if they can keep dumping onto us, they'll put our oil industry right up against the wall. The majors may benefit for a while, but if there's any interference in the international marine traffic, if the tankers can't get in here, that's, of course, the end of the majors, too. And you can't crank these industries up again in a hurry. We did marvels in World War II. You remember when they brought out a Liberty ship or its equivalent Mm -hmm. every every couple of days or whatever it was? Well, but we had weeks and months in which we were still safe from anything that Hitler or Japan could do. And that situation will never recur. So when we talk about national security today, we're talking about the fact that it isn't whether or not we have manganese in the hills of the United States when we don't have the train miners or the railroads or the railroad cars or the equipment, or we're not taking the manganese out. Potential mining properties don't mean anything to us in an emergency. And potential oil, uh, we can't create refineries overnight. Well, we are more dependent than ever before on foreign uh, materials, raw materials. And yet, at the same time, we have, in very recent years, cut our Navy by 50%, while the Soviets have vastly increased theirs. 
Well, every time Mr. Reagan has a press conference, there are angry questions about why we're not sitting down and negotiating with A, Danny Ortega, and B, Gorbachev. Well, <laughs> our press does uh, credit to the Soviet Union. <laughs> Yet, you know, if, if we could change around, if we were to if we were to press Washington and say we cannot any longer serve as the international bazaar of the world because all of our industries are up against state controlled and state financed ventures. We're up they're up against sovereign powers who can sell at a loss, who can sell indefinitely and so on. If we were to alter that situation we could begin to recover. And yet, we, I, I, I'll never forget in the 30s when we had this Great Depression that my seniors, the adults at that time, were cursing the bankers, they were cursing the businessmen as though the businessmen had plunged themselves into bankruptcy just to make things uncomfortable mm -hmm. for everybody else. One of the very important men in Washington who's very familiar with all these things and with the threats we face from the Soviet Union uh, said he sees only one hope for the future the Christian community in particular those who are concerned with Christian reconstruction because it isn't merely a matter of knowledge it's a matter also of moral courage of being ready to say that uh, with, by God's grace and help we must fight and win, that nothing else he feels can turn this country around. Well, look at the early Christians. They were uh, sitting in the middle of a great empire that had absolutely lost the power to reason. They had runaway inflation, they, find, they had food rationings, they had wage and price controls, they had unemployment, they had decayed monuments all around, the machinery of Rome was falling around their ears, and the worst happened. Rome fell, and, and Christianity rose up. And uh, I, I agree, I, I don't see any way that we could foresee uh, whether next Thursday, but with the help of God, we could survive whatever comes along. Mm -hmm. Well, this place is a very heavy responsibility on Christians because to be a non-Christian in every sense of the word is to have no future in this world or the world to come. And we as the people of the future in the world to come must create a godly future here because that's our responsibility under God. Well, of course, uh, you brought up the question of courage, which is allied with faith. Without faith, how can anybody have courage? My dad was always fond of telling me about the president of Uruguay when he was surrounded uh, by the army in his palace and the general put the gun on his desk and said, you know what to do, and the president said yes, picked up the gun and shot the general dead. Went out on the balcony and said, go back to the barracks, the general is dead. And the following day, the Uruguayan Congress eliminated, dissolved its army. They've never had an army since, and that's how they did it, and that's why they did it. <laughs> Uh, there was a fellow who knew what to do. Yes. And, and I do think that people change history. Yes. And that one can never overlook the impact of the individual on events. Yes. What was that president's name? I, I don't recall. <laughs> I mean, Dad knew him, but I, I've forgotten the name. He's a man who needs to be talked about in our day. <laughs> a man after my own heart. <laughs> Well, we are facing, some people say, a major breakdown in the market within the next a few weeks, well, as much as 500 points. So some of these things 
well, we had a big break in the market a few years back, and because the press didn't understand it, it didn't create any panic. It was a very, very severe decline over a period of weeks, and nobody gave the newspaper men a release explaining it, so therefore they never discovered the story. Uh, they only discover stories now that are head handed to them, you know, complete with conclusions and so forth. But I do think the market has, has gotten a, uh, <clears throat> a little bit crazy, and I do think that uh, if you were to buy it on the short side, you'd probably make some money. But I hope no panic. Mm -hmm. That's what really turns it into a fire. When men lose their nerve, they do crazy things. Yes. And one of the problems of our time is that men have been refusing to face up to the situation domestically and internationally. They've been running away from reality. And I believe it is people who do not face up to things who are the most ready to panic when finally things fall in on them. Well, look at the recent anti-contra vote in Congress. There's absolutely no excuse to get upset about Libya when you're not going to get upset about a billion dollars in Soviet arms, North Korean, East German, Arabian, PLO, Russian, Cuban, and Central American troops creating the largest army in all Latin America right at our doorstep. There's absolutely no excuse for Tip O'Neill and his cohorts to be allowed to walk around. Nobody should ever shake hands with those people again. And when a priest in Nicaragua described some of the things that were happening there to two American journalists, they went to Ortega's men and reported the priest. Well, they, they, they should get the Coward's Award for the year, and that's a hard award to get in the United States these days. Yes. But that's the kind of thing that's happening in the misrepresentation of the situation in Nicaragua. Well, of course, if you want to get right down to it, the whole world is afraid of the Soviet Union. And we've joined Europe in that particular posture. Yes. Yet I don't think they would ever come to a fighting war with us. They are so convinced that they can outweigh us. The United States is a country of quick enthusiasms, uh, a country with very little patience, a country, uh, I hate to say this, without an intellectual class. We have intellectual Lloyds. We have people who have read everything, who can quote everybody, and who haven't got an idea of their own. And Present company accepted. Well, I, I don't know. You know, I suppose. <laughs> but really, outside of the Christian community, I, I can we can get to basics. When I, when I meet a fellow Christian, I can get to basic and serious topics without any problem. And even though we don't always agree, we can always discuss. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's not true elsewhere. Well, we have... Just a couple of minutes or so, Otto. Are there any things you'd like to add to what you've said thus far, either to sum up or to supplement? Well, I could only repeat that we should really talk to our representatives in more serious terms than we have so far. Oil spills notwithstanding, we cannot live without oil. Yes. And if we are going to live upon the mercy of the world, it's a mighty dangerous and unfriendly world we're going to rely on. Yes, uh, we were discussing at our staff breakfast the other day how everything is becoming electrified. 
they're no longer making the manual typewriters. And when my hand-powered lawnmower quit on me recently, I had to uh, search all over the county before I found a man who was ready to fix it because they're all uh, gasoline-powered now. Well, we have made ourselves so vulnerable, even in the least things. Well, look at our downtown cities. They look like greenhouses, upended. Mm-hmm. Glass-hung skyscrapers everywhere. We yeah. really, we really believe, like the butterfly or the grasshopper, that it's going to be summer forever. And when an earthquake hits, and the whole world is earthquake-prone, some areas less frequently than others. Those glass buildings really shatter and are a menace to those in the streets. We're going to have to figure out something more, uh, a little <laughs> more pleasant, Rush. Uh, we're, we're going from one terrible precipice to, the, to another. Well, I'll tell you, the uh, marvelous thing in all of this is that God is on the throne and he's laughing at these idiots who are turning the world into a hell as they try to make it uh, humanistic heaven. And he has a better plan for us, and we'd better pay attention to him. Now, amen to that. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening. And Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules dot com